the more you understand about the critical problems, the more you will find one of them, the most critical or one of the most critical problems that you can actually solve. And then you just figure out a way to solve it that works for those people. Welcome to another episode of Hype Fury Presents. In this episode, I talk to Arvid Kahl. Arvid is a German machine who sold his 55k MRR business Feedback Panda and then started a blog, the bootstrap founder, created a successful email list and podcast, and he just had a great book launch, Zero to Sold. He already sold more than 2,000 copies. In this episode, you'll learn what to avoid and what steps to take to create a successful business while building an audience on Twitter. My name is Yannick, co-founder here at Hype Fury, and I hope you enjoy the show. You kind of have to let go of the notion that it's about your idea of a product to begin with. If you want to build a business, if you already know what it's going to be without knowing who it's going to be for, you have it the wrong way around. That's just what I felt for myself. What I've seen many people fail with is understanding the world of building a business as a world of having a product and then just trying to sell it to as many people as possible. That's like the classical, traditional notion of making money. You do a thing, you sell it to people, and you hope to reach as many people as you can all over the place. doesn't really matter who it is, getting as many people into the <laughs> store. And that's the notion of like big chains, right? That's what the supermarket is trying to do. They, they don't try to establish a communication strategy with you as an individual person. They don't try to even engage you other than with a flyer or with trying to put advertisements on the newspaper websites that you read, that that's the maximum of engagement that they do, never personal. And I think for bootstrap founders, for people in the bootstrap space, if you don't engage with every single person of your audience, you are missing out. You're leaving stuff on the table. And if you want to be able to do that, well, then you need to know who your audience actually is. So if you don't know that from the beginning, then you're just walking in the dark. So my suggestion has always been find an audience first. Find a group of people that you want to help. That's where it starts. Like for you, look at Hype Fury. You want to help people on Twitter. And it's obvious that you want to help them because you're also one of them. And you need to be able to use good tools to get your job done. And you want to engage with a community that is awesome and extremely supportive. Like the indie hacker, even Twitter money sometimes is very supportive. You know, there's a lot of weird people there, but there's also some great people there. Just like any community, <laughs> to be honest, right? You have the same in the indie hacker space. You have very much the same in the software developer space. Any Twitter bubble has their weird people, but they also have great people. Those are the people you come for. And if you know your audience so well that you know there's great people there and I want to help all the other people get to that stage or I want to help these great people be even greater. If you have that feeling, well, then you know you have an audience that you can serve, right? And that's where you should start. Not with, I want to build an app, Tinder for cats. Who's your audience for that, right? Who needs that? First off, probably for this example, nobody. But even if there were a couple of people out there, they're not a homogenous kind of niche. They're not a tribe. They're just random people who want to have a fun app to like waste a couple hours, that's not an audience that you can build a relationship with. That's an audience that comes into a gigantic supermarket, buys one thing, and then leaves and never comes in again. And that's not a reason to build a business. Once you communicate with these people, you understand, okay, these people have problems. These people have challenges. These people have goals. The more you talk with them, the more you understand which ones of those are critical and which ones are just little obstacles. And the more you understand about the critical problems, the more you will find one of them, the most critical or one of the most critical problems that you can actually solve. And then you just figure out a way to solve it that works for those people. And then you turn it into a product that works within the confines 
of what these people use. And then, only then, do you build anything. What a lot of people do is so they think, hey, I want to start a business and I want to create an app. I want to do this and that. But that's already going a bridge too far. Yeah? You, want to, you want to find the audience first and you want to ask them, what's your problem? And you don't want to focus on the solution first. You want to say, hey, what's a critical problem? How would the solution look like? What would make your day? And then you start you know, building Yeah, but because if you don't, if you don't start with that, and if you start with, I want to build an app for X, let's just say I want to build an app for farmers help them with their crops or help them with marketing into the city. One of the projects that I hilariously failed at here in Berlin, trying to build a bootstrap business to connect farmers. You know? really? Yeah, it's, uh, I, I talk about that in my book. The attempts at bootstrapping businesses that I was part of that went nowhere because those are the most interesting ones. Like the ones that were successful, great. Like Feedback Panda is a great story. But the other businesses that never went anywhere, now they're even more instructive because they show you like where you didn't guess right and where you acted in the wrong capacity. So we tried to build that. And we tried to build a, a cool website for farmers to sell their f- local food into the city and then for people in the city to find farmers outside the city. Well, it turns out a farmer doesn't sit in front of their computer the whole day. But we never thought about asking the farmer, well, how can we make it possible in the medium that you already use or in the workflow that you already have in your life to find a little space for our thing? And that's a risk you can avoid by just putting that in front of building. Because if you figure out this farmer at best spends a couple minutes on his phone every day, well, then maybe you don't build a web app, you build a native app for its phone. Or maybe even better, you build some sort of Telegram bot or something where you could just yell at the bot, I got like 20 more potatoes, and then that turns it into something on your website, right? And if you figure out how the workflow of the person that you're actually trying to serve allows your product to be a part of it, well, then you're validated much better than building something and then holding it in front of that person. I got no time for this. Nice idea. Never going to use it. That's when you learn these kind of things. Because if you're a developer, that's one of the big problems. Why people start with this? Like you see products all the time. Like literally we have a platform in the development space that is called Product Hunt. As if everything out there was always just a product. Like even my book, I launched it on Product Hunt and it did really well, but it's not a product. It's like a a compendium of knowledge. It's not something that you just casually buy and put in your home. But Product Hunt suggests that everything out there is something you can consume as a product. And that's what colors are thinking about building a business. This is a product. Everything's a product. Well, I have to think about the product first. And then backtrack to what problem does this solve and for whom does it solve the problem? Being surrounded by products is not a big surprise, right? Everything we touch is a product. We don't touch the abstract thought of helping somebody. We touch the implementation of it. And unless you consciously choose to go back to those first steps and start from the beginning, you will always just think of a product and then you will try to stuff it into the market, which is never going to happen unless you're super lucky or you already have a gigantic platform and people buy it because you're you. That can happen. But if you don't, if you're starting from nowhere, from zero, then you don't have that. And if you don't have this following, you need to create something that people are actually willing to buy. And you can find that by actually asking them what they need instead of trying to dangle something in front of them, hoping they buy it. Good one. People should start problem hunt instead of product hunt. Yes. And, and there are these platforms. It's kind of hard to monetize a platform like that. You know, like even for the people building, I don't know if problem hunt exists. I think it actually might. I remember a Twitter conversation <laughs> where I was just saying the same thing. And some people were saying, yeah, this should actually exist. But the problem with problems is that there's so many and the validation is complicated because it's always contextual. 
it's contextual within an ever-shifting audience. Let's say for Feedback Panda, we solved the problem for English as a second language teachers who taught online for Chinese schools teaching Chinese kids over the internet. That was an audience that existed back in 2017. Now in 2020, they still kind of need that, but there are now solutions in the space. Now there's different problems. And those problems may have not existed or not existed as strongly before, like scheduling. Now, because there's a proliferation of these online schools in China, when we started, there was like five or six big ones. Now there's 50. And as an English teacher teaching for these schools, you could teach for any number of them. But now you need to like combine your schedule and see, okay, Monday from 8 to 10, I teach for them. And then from 10 to 12 for them. This is complicated stuff. And this is like a Calendly XAI situation where you need to schedule things. That now is a problem. So if somebody would have said scheduling for online teachers back in 2017, wouldn't have been a problem. But it definitely is one now. And the contextually changing landscape of problems and their validation and the audiences within which they happen is so complicated that it's so much easier to put a thing on a list in Product Hunt, put a link there, have a couple of comments under it. The link goes out. People look at the thing. They upvote it, downvote it. You build a gigantic audience. It's tangible. It's manifest. These things exist. Problems, too complicated. That's why I feel these don't exist as well. Again, it's kind of hard to understand, like really grasp the nature of a problem without being part of this community. Let's be honest, what problems people who tweet a lot have if you didn't know how it feels to tweet a lot, right? But I think it might be a good exercise for people who have this idea in their head, you know, I want to start a business. And then I could say, okay, what do I like to do? What are my hobbies? Okay, I'm going to go to Problem Hunt. I'm going to click on right. my hobbies. And there you see, okay, these people in my hobby, they have a problem and they've described it so I understand. And then they can learn, okay, you know, how can I create a, you know, something like that. But it's And then you, you come to this little bump in the road of the fact that people often are not reflective of their problems. If people would know that this is a problem, then they would have worked on a solution already. Most people who are aware of problems try to find some way of, of solving it. Either they don't solve it because it's too hard to solve, which suggests that building a solution is always complicated, right? Or they do solve it in a really, really bad way. And that's what Danielle found herself doing, actually. Like she was teaching and she was trying to figure out how do I deal with student feedback. And she had like Word documents and then Excel sheets and all these things like for templating. It was a mess, but it was her mess and it worked for her. And we found in the community that we were part of that lots of teachers had their own little mess and it worked for them. And what we then did is consolidate this into something that they could all use. It's like the term that April Dunford so clearly calls competitive alternatives. It's not a competitor. Like Google spreadsheets or whatever, word processor, it's not a competitor to your SaaS business per se, but it is an alternative. Even pen and paper is an alternative to many SaaS businesses. So unless you're much better than that, that is something you're competing with. And if you see these things in the wild, in your audience, people are using pen and paper to solve their problems, or they have a little Excel sheet or Word files. The worst part is when they mail Word files or Excel sheets back and forth, that's where a SaaS can happen. And then again, what you said, it would be great if those people could describe their problems, but people have this inability to conceptualize things outside of their own world. It's like Henry Ford said, you know, if I ask my customers what they want, they said, you know, I want a faster horse, but that's of course not what you That's the context made. of the world they're living in. In our example, it's the same thing. People did not expect a SaaS solution, a browser extension based SaaS solution to their problem because neither did they think of browser extensions as something they would ever use or SaaS as a kind of business that they would use. They were like, they were teachers. So what they knew is go to a store, buy something. 
or you, know, you go to a website, if at all, download something, install it in your computer. The fact that you would have a monthly kind of Netflix-like subscription, that for some people took some convincing, right? And these were people that were online teachers. Like they were using computers to do their work and be, they were paid monthly for their job. They still didn't see that as necessarily a thing that they should be paying monthly for. So I would say Product Hunt is probably going to outperform Problem Hunt, but it would still be a nice idea. I like it. And so you created Feedback Panda because you saw your wife Danielle struggle. And, you know, you just mentioned it was hard to get the first customers. I heard you on our podcast and I read your book, at least a part I haven't finished yet. And there you say, hey, we went to the communities where the teachers were already were. We helped them, you know, we didn't promote our product, but we just say, hey, this is how we do things. And you helped them. But still, it was hard to get the first customers in. How, how did you do that? We were keenly observing the community for a long time before we even started communicating. That's one of the things. Of course, the story that I always tell is that our marketing was essentially Danielle commenting on one post on Facebook. That's what started the avalanche. There was already people, always, every single day asking within these little communities of online teachers, how do we deal with feedback? I'm a new teacher. I just started yesterday and now I need to write like 10 Student feedbacks, how do I do this? I have no idea how to do this right. I don't want to fail. Can you teach me? That's what people would call and ask other people in their communities, right? Other more experienced teachers. And they would always say, well, either you write your own templates or you go to this Google Doc where some teachers are sharing templates or you just write whatever. Like There was a lot of answers on a lot of different quality answers even, but people would always answer in a certain kind of tone. And we understood at some point this kind of particular tone that people would talk to each other with. And that's how we then talked to them. Because at some point when we were done building Feedback Panda, the first version, and Danielle had tested it for a while, she was just saying, okay, well, let's now finally respond to one of those questions. Whenever the next question comes up and we say, we're using Feedback Panda. Here, that's what we're using. And we didn't go into the, the marketing pitch. It wasn't important to do that at that point. It was much more important to talk in a natural way to those people within their highly guarded community and not turn this into a marketing effort. We just said, we use Feedback Panda and here's the link. And then we stopped talking. And then people said, oh, this is cool. Let me take a look. The first day we did that, I think we had somewhere between 70 and 80 people signing up which was great. This is a Facebook group of like 20,000 people or like 10,000 at that point. But the thing is, if you are in a community that is highly guarded, that you can only get in if you are part of this industry. So you had to kind of post a screenshot of your teaching portal, your online website to even get into the Facebook group. So they made sure no outsiders were in there. The kind of close-knit community is a place where people trust each other. And when people trust each other, they will click a link that they've never seen before when it comes from somebody who's been either active in the community for a while or they've been there for a long time or they haven't shown themselves to be malicious, you know, like people trust. And when trust happens, they give you much, much more leeway. They look at your product. People started signing up. They started using the product. From that day, we had a conversion rate somewhere between 30 and 40% plus. That was significant for a SaaS product. And it was just a sign of how much trust people put into the product and how much the product actually provided value for them as well, obviously. But people looked at it, then they said, wow, I've been using this for three days. My life has changed. Like, you know, that kind of stuff. When some people say that about your product, and I've heard people say that about Hype Fury as well. I will definitely say it about Hype Fury because it did change my life. But if you get people talk about your product like this, then no way of spending money on any other kind of marketing could produce those kind of results. 
And that is what we did. People were extremely positive in their first responses. They they started sharing the product. And that's the kind of thing where other people like painstakingly have to add a referral system. We only added it at some point because we didn't need it. People were already referring other people because they just really liked the product. We later integrated a referral system because we wanted to see, could we maybe incentivize the more lazy teachers to share the link and get us into more communities? Because that's the other problem. And I think that's always a question I get. So I might just want to post a question and answer it immediately. Well, how do you know where to go for these communities? If you want to help online teachers, if you're not an online teacher, it's going to be hard to find out where they are. And One of the most basic and logical and almost hilarious answers to this is, well, you ask them, right? You find one and you talk to them. You build up a relationship because it's an old school friend of yours or it's the wife of an old school friend of yours. All these kind of people that you have in your own life, a lot of them are pretty well connected to interesting audiences. I'm currently working on building some sort of framework to finding who you could actually tap into in the search for an audience, because you said it earlier. Do I hear a new SaaS business? Uh, no, but actually maybe a new book. I'm considering this. There's a space in between. Like this could also be a, at least a little product that I'm building because I want to build something. I'm a software engineer. I need to build stuff, but still trying to, to keep that suppressed a bit so I can do more thinking at this point. Anyhow, the idea is to find out what are you good at? What do you like? What communities are you already part of, Right. Even maybe without knowing, some people really love coffee. They have like special coffee flown in from particular places and they have these thousand dollars worth of machines that really specifically grind it and then make this amazing coffee. You might think you just really like coffee, but you're actually part of a worldwide community of coffee aficionados. And they have forums, they have apps, they have communities, they have meetups, They have conferences, like there's opportunity in even a thing such as liking coffee more than other people. And you can do this with any of your hobbies. Just walk through your day for a couple of days and make a note whenever you do something, what kind of community this might actually be. And you will end up with a list of 30, 40, 50, maybe 100 communities that you're part of. For me, software engineer, writer, public speaker, podcast, guest, podcast, host, You know, there's so so much and they're all so different, so many different groups of people. You will find something in many bubbles, in most bubbles. There's some problem that when solved is worth some money. Even for Harry Potter, it's a pretty lame example because like there's the books out there, the franchise, and there's a lot of copyright issues if you build anything there. But I see ideas in the Harry Potter space, like Harry Potter escape rooms, seeing that stuff. Or the kind of like Pokemon Go, Harry Potter game. There's meetups there where people sell their swag, like little wands and stuff. It's just, it's just cute, but there is an opportunity there. And in more professional circles, you will also find more opportunity to make reliable money in the form of a SaaS. But start with one audience and dig deep. And you will not only understand, are there problems that are worth paying for for them? But you will always find more interesting people that have other problems that belong to other communities. It's like the rabbit hole situation. Like if you ever go to Wikipedia and you read something and two hours later, you're reading about Greek philosophy, that is exactly what you should be doing with an audience building, right? You click a link, go to the next link, go to the next, until you find something where you want to help those people, where they have interesting problems, where they're actually willing to pay for their problems and then where the market is big enough for you, but not too big. 
because then Microsoft comes in and builds a clone of your product or something and you're out or Google or any of these gigantic companies. Interesting. So in the beginning, you were just in those groups and you give people interesting comments. You said, you know, we use Feedback Panda. Why don't you try it? And you also mentioned, you know, we launched the referral program. Did you look at, you know, hey, our growth is going down. That's why we're going to do it. What, what did happen once you uh, created it? Okay, well, the reason why we released the referral program is because we also increased our prices at the same time. So from the beginning, Feedback Panda was a $10 a month product. Initially, we also had a $5 plan, $5 a month with some limitation on amount of data. But we quickly figured out that those people, funny enough, had like 200% the amount of customer service load for some reason, like bargain shoppers and didn't like that because we were just two people throughout the business, like through two years of running and building Feedback Panda from zero to 55,000 in MRR was only ever Danielle and me running the business. So at the end, we had 5,000 customers and 5,000 customers needs a lot of automation, a lot of knowledge base and very little of I have to do anything manually or else you just swamped the whole day. And we noticed quite in the beginning that those $5 plan people had a different outlook on how we should be running our business. They were I wouldn't say greedy and I wouldn't really call it obnoxious, but it's getting there, right? There was a lot of demanding kind of behavior that we didn't see from the other people. And you have to understand that online teachers, teachers in general, they are people, they don't get paid much for their work, right? So most of our customers were in the United States and many of them had this job as a second or third job. So you can imagine if somebody has three jobs that even 10 bucks a month is a lot of money. But funny enough, that psychology translated into less of a demanding kind of perspective that they, okay, I pay a lot of money for this. It is working most of the time. And if it's not, it'll be back in a couple of minutes. It's all right, right? That was the perspective of those people. But we got rid of the $5 plan, grandfathered in those people who wanted to keep it. And up till the end, when we sold the business two years in, there was still like 18 people on this plan who were really just deleting data every month so they could stay under the cap. I guess if you spent four hours deleting data to save five bucks a month. Wow. You have a very interesting perspective on your hourly rate, but who am I to judge, right? So we just let them do it. Didn't try to convince them. To what pricing plans did you go? We went to 15 and nothing else. And yearly of 150. What we also did was we grandfathered in everybody on the 10 plan, on the plan with $10 a month. So we told people... Here's the thing, December 2018, I think that was when I was, we will increase our prices on January 1st to 15 bucks a month, 150 a year. If you subscribe to the yearly subscription by the end of this year for 110, you can keep that indefinitely. So we had a lot of money in December because people really upgraded the last couple of days before the end of the year. There was a, a solid influx of cash and then... On January 1st, we flipped the switch and every new subscriber that was not yet in the trial running would have to pay 15 bucks a month unless that was the referral system. They came referred by another teacher. So we kept the 10 bucks a month, 110 bucks a month plan for people who came referred. So that was the incentive on the part of the person being referred. And then for every three people you refer as an existing teacher, you would get a free month. That was the referral ring teachers um, referral system. And that worked pretty well because in the end, you lose out on one person's monthly payment and 15 additional bucks, but you still get four teachers. So that is fine, right? So there was our logic and it made sense financially 
funny enough, it didn't really change much of the amount of people coming into the product. Like I said, we already had such strong word of mouth that people just really changed the link they would already use anyway for sharing up to our product. But we did that so that people could still, with a bit of work, get the lower price tier if they couldn't afford the 15 bucks a month, knowing that we were in a community of people that had often a lot of money troubles. Well, before you hit the 55K MOR milestone, you probably went into talks with, uh, was it Ernest Capital? No, it was SureSwift Capital. SureSwift is part of Ernest. They are a partner in Ernest Capital as well. So the indie world is a village, I guess. Lots of people do working together. But that's where I met Tyler Tringas, who is a really, really great founder, wrote an amazing ebook on founding as well. That was the inspiration for my own book, by the way. But yes, we started talking to those people around 50K, though. It's not too far from the 55. Why at 50K? That's a really interesting question. We never wanted to sell the business. Like we didn't intend to sell the business from the beginning, but we intended to build a sellable business from day one. So I had read the book Built to Sell and that's what he recommends, right? Like John Marlowe wrote this amazing book that I I recommend all the time, Built to Sell, describing the journey of a guy who has like a a design agency and he wants to sell it. And he figures out nobody's going to buy my design agency. I am my design agency. Without me, nothing happens. How can I make my business sellable? I want to cash out. And he goes through this kind of story and explains, yes, you want to remove yourself from the operation of your business so that somebody else can do it. You want to, for that to be able to be possible, document everything in your business. So you have like a standard operating procedure, manual style kind of documentation. You want to automate as much as possible so you can remove the need of your work and the need of other people's work in the business and all these little things. And we considered all of these from the beginning because the thing that made it click for me was understanding that a business is sellable because it's great. It's not great because it's sellable, but a great business is sellable. You know, like if you have a business that runs super smoothly and you could essentially hire a CAO up for your business and you remove yourself completely, well, then somebody else could do the exact same thing with that business. So for a private equity company like SureSwift Capital, who have done this at this point, I think 34 times, that was very interesting. And we had our financials hooked into Indie Hackers, the Indie Hackers product page for Feedback Panda. We had our Stripe verified revenue thing there, which really just showed a graph of our monthly recurring revenue just going up and up and up and up. So essentially, at some point, they did the math and they saw, hmm, this company is now making, what, 600,000 euros in a year. That looks interesting. Maybe we should talk to them, right? And Kevin McArdle, who is... SureSwift Capital to the outside world, he reached out to to Danielle in an email. They got talking. Then we had a chat and we started to think, okay, they're actually genuinely interested in not only buying a product and keeping it running, but keeping it running and making it better. Right. And we thought, okay, before that, we thought everybody who wants to buy a business just wants to buy it and then kind of get rid of it or resell it for a higher price. You know, these kind of horror stories. But in talking to the people who had sold to SureSwift, and Tyler is one of those, so is Moritz Dausinger, another German entrepreneur who sold two businesses to SureSwift Capital. We chatted with all of these guys. They all were on the Indie Hackers podcast at some point. And I hope you can bring them onto this podcast at some point because they have a lot of interesting things to say. So they all had really positive things to say. And we kind of warmed up to the idea. And we also warmed up to the idea of selling because in my case in particular, I was on the verge of burnout 
I may actually have been mid burnout and I only recently understood it. Like back then it was, ah, everything is fine. I'm kind of stressed. I'm kind of anxious, but you know, running a business. But now that I look back at it, I had zero time for anything else. I couldn't write. I couldn't think, couldn't reflect. I was just constantly customer service, building product, fixing this, you know, this kind of thing. When you're the only technical person in a business, you have to do everything. And at some point, um, that was way too much. And I kind of retreated from the good kind of work that I could have been doing, the kind of visionary future-based stuff and retreated into the day-to-day. And then I felt, okay, this is not something I want to continue doing forever. So selling the business was a, a great opportunity too, because I wanted to be able to step back. And obviously, once you're in this kind of range, 55,000 MRR, you can sell for a pretty solid amount of money that pretty much immediately solves all your future financial problems. So that was also a very interesting potential situation to be in. And now that we are in this position, you still kind of have the same problems. Now you need to find something else to do because without passion, without a some kind of purpose, your day is just super boring. So you need to do something. But I felt it was necessary for me to sell because I was too stupid to hire. Let me just condense that. <laughs> and I've been very vocal about this in the community on Twitter that I did this by mistake and it did some solid damage to myself, like not hiring when I should have, that... I've been yelling about this so much that I've now have people actually tell me I was in the same situation. I listened to your advice and I hired somebody and boy, was that a good idea. So I feel that is my most validating thing about my writing in particular is when people see that change what they're doing and feel much better and have a better business for it. So I can only stress this, hire somebody. And I think you guys have been doing that too, right? I've actually, yeah, yeah. So this is my second startup I've been working on. I've had one before, which is like a Dutch Uber for service provider. So you could order your plumber. And I can still remember vividly that I did the uh, support and I did, uh, you know, when people also could call us still to book a, a job. And so it was 11 o'clock and I wanted to get in bed and the company phone went. <laughs> so I had to still pick it up and do the thing. And it was just, oh man, we were so happy that we had uh, customer service uh, people who could do that. And the same with Hype Fury, you know, we did uh, support ourselves in the beginning, you know, Sammy and me. And it's just such a heavy burden that's off your shoulders when someone else can do it and can also do a better job. Yeah, that is so important because I am not a support person. I mean, I love talking to people, but there is this kind of wanting to help people by doing what I do best and wanting to help people by doing what needs to be done. Two different things. So I figured that I was better building software that would amplify the work that somebody else could be doing. That was when we already sold the business. Like the transition period was when we hired somebody as our replacement. And it was super easy. Like we hired a developer. He was amazing. Like really picked up everything and just took over. And I was just sitting there doing nothing because he understood every single thing, right? I was in fear of people not comprehending what needed to be done, but I had documented everything. I had automated everything. Like obviously this was much easier than a, a product that nobody had looked at in years. The same for customer service. We had... 40, 50 pages of SOPs of like describing how people should go to through such a conversation because we had used it for ourselves. Like how pointless was that? We could have just given that to somebody else. And one more thing, you're saying this thing with the phone, with the company phone. I remember, and I still to this day get some sort of PTSD when I hear the intercom widget go off. <laughs> I don't know if you, if you can relate to this, but yeah. when I hear this little 
click i think okay now i have to help somebody i have to drop everything and then i remember oh no it's just somebody reaching out to me trying to sell me something that's perfectly fine and <laughs> it should never come to this right that is not why you are in business you don't want to develop a severe even with emails because whenever our service had an outage we would get those emails from our yeah the the, the torrent of like bing 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 and sometimes when I get multiple emails in a minute, I feel, okay, like what is happening? Why is my pulse getting quicker? It's just this memory of having to respond to something unexpected. And if you can remove that either through good documentation, you know what's going to be, what you have to do, what has to be done. You can either do it yourself, hand it over to somebody else, or just really hire somebody who really is good at the job, then you'll be fine and you won't develop an intercom-based PTSD. It's like, what, what is this even like? How was the uh, the deal structured? Was it all the money up front or was there an earnout period? Can you tell a little bit about that? So there are a couple of things I cannot talk about, like the actual sum and the specific details. But if you check out Shurse Capital's website where they talk about all of these things, you will see that they usually don't do earnouts that much. I mean, we had a transitionary period, but there was no earnout attached in the tr- conventional sense. Most private equity companies, when they have a deal like this, they have some sort of percentage up front and a little percentage later, just as a security. We had something similar, but heavily skewed towards the upfront percentage. So that was a significant chunk of money. And it was that because everything was out in the open. When we did due diligence, like not only did TrueSwift do diligence on us, we did due diligence on them, which also is something that I wrote about because that's something that's kind of missing in the whole debate about due diligence you should do the diligence on your acquirer. And there are ways of doing that, which is what I write about in the book as well. Sorry. And they figured everything was there, everything they needed. They looked into the product. They looked at the documentation, everything, the books. For an open book, so it was easy. They didn't have a lot of risk. Yeah, there was no risk because first of all, everything was there. The market was still clearly growing. I mean, nobody could have predicted Corona, but even that didn't affect them as much. I guess I don't have insight into the numbers anymore, but I still see a thriving tech market, maybe even more remote learning, remote teaching right now at this point. So this might actually be a big opportunity that as sad as it is, comes from a pandemic, but you never know, right? That's what, what building a business is all about. You adapt to these changes. But we had a, let's say around in, in 2020, at some point, we were completely out of it after selling in July of 2019. And the transition was the most easy thing I've ever done. Because we had hired people that were great. SureSwift itself had a great team that took everything over. Like they took over the marketing and the the little things that we didn't have hired anyone for. They just took into their more overarching kind of teams. And they all kind of share resources. It's really cool. And there was no strings attached. Like we're completely free. Now over a year into it, we're still on extremely good report with them. Like still wonderful people. I mean, they changed our lives in many ways. But it was a extremely straightforward deal. Even the legal paperwork. Like we had a lawyer. I'm German, right? I have to do everything by the books and I have to do the books by the books and I have to do the books by the law and I have to do the law by the law. So the first thing that we did, once we got to a point where there were actually meaningful legal documents that we could sign, letter of intent, right? The thing that is non-binding, but still kind of prevents you from certain things, like talking to other interested parties, we involved a lawyer. He looked at this. He said, this is fine. Was there a breakup fee included or you can't, maybe can't talk about it? I don't recall. Like I said, super straightforward because they have done this 30 times and they have a reputation to lose if they mess up, right? Because then nobody sells that thing anymore. And that's what they thrive on growing through acquisition at Swift. And then 
once we actually had the, the, the asset purchase agreement, we gave that to our lawyer and his response was, this is the most boring document I've ever read. You can sign this, no problem. First off, if a lawyer says that, it gives you a lot of confidence. And if you think about that, somebody just gave you a meaningful, compact, non-aggressive document that builds a lot of reputation with them. The transaction went through an escrow. That was no problem. It arrived on a bank account. We got the champagne bottle out and then we handed over the business, you know, and that was flawless, extremely smooth, didn't take a whole, even take a day and it was all transition. So can only recommend selling his ass to shoes with capital, Yannick. Um, I, yeah, it's, uh, well, maybe a couple of years. Who knows? Who knows? Uh, yeah, tell him I sent you. Because you know, no, but it definitely was one of the most surprisingly easy things in a very complicated world. Because like John Warlow, I said like Built to Sell, right? The author of that book, he hasn't even has a podcast called Built to Sell Radio. It's like at this point, like 200 something shows. And every show is about somebody who sold their business, either a small one or a gigantic one. Somebody sold and he interviews them and gets into exactly what you asked me, but with hundreds of companies. We were on that podcast too. So if you want to hear more about that, just check out Built to Sell Radio. It was interesting because John is also like a hero of mine because obviously he wrote the book, the playbook, to which we built a successful business. So being able to be on a show explaining to him how much he helped us with his book, it was just a gift, right? It's, it's really nice. And there's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of, you asked for earnouts and stuff. There's the most complicated legal things in this. Earnouts, breakup fees, retainers, and there's a lot of red flags. There's a lot of white flags. There's a lot of stuff going on. And if you have no idea, and most people who build a business, they have never built a business, let alone sold a business before. Right. So you're completely in deep waters and you really don't know how to swim too well at this point. But we figured it out and we figured out that most other people figured it out too. SureSwift did a great job in making it easy for us. So I guess this just turned into a SureSwift capital advertisement here, but it's it really was great. It was really, really nice. And there were no no surprises, which is what I appreciated most because I was in this stressful, anxious state, you know, you don't want to be messed with even more in that state. And it turned out I wasn't. So we sold and I immediately jumped into writing at that point because now I finally had time to talk about these things that we had learned. And I started writing about my psychological trauma that I had and how I dealt with that in the company. And once I had kind of written enough about this, I went into how I did customer service, how we did tech, how Danielle did the marketing, how we built the business and, you know, all these other themes. And I started to write a, a blog post every week on, on the Bootstrap Founder, on the blog. And then I started to write a newsletter to hold myself accountable, lazy, you know, and without a newsletter, I wouldn't have to write something every week. So now I had to. And then people told me, well, I don't want to read. Can you just record a podcast? So now I had to record a podcast for some reason. So I started that <laughs> as well. And then after a while, all these blog posts, all these themes that I was talking about started to make sense. They fitted into a bigger structure. So I wrote a guide, a 25,000 word guide called Zero to Sold. And then somebody said, well, this guide is cool, but I would really like it as a book and I would pay you for it. You should really do that. <laughs> and well, then I wrote Zero to Sold. Like I, I wrote the actual book, which at this point is has been out for almost two months. I've sold almost 2,000 copies, which is like somewhere around 15, 16, 17,000 uh, euros in, in revenue, pre-tax, obviously, but it'll be it'll be close to that. And it's still selling every single day, right? So that's, that's the great thing about an info product, like a book, if you are on Amazon, and it used to be a bestseller for a couple of days and a number one new release for two weeks, 
and now it has a number of reviews and ratings and stuff. This sells itself. And people, like we said, the best kind of marketing is word of mouth. People started recommending it. If you check my Twitter, you will every couple of days find somebody who takes an actual picture with the book. Even Sammy, when he got the, the paperback version of my book, took a picture of the with book still in its Amazon package with the dog as well. And that to me is such, I don't know, I, I could have hugged him for that. It's just a feeling of gratitude when you see this for your work, that somebody takes the time and disciplines their dog to sit still for a photo you know, for that, it's just so wonderful. And this happens still every couple of days. Somebody shows me a picture of the Kindle that the book is on or them holding it up or them reading it by the pool. There's a large amount of people who read my book by the pool for some reason, but it's just what it is. And that is how it continues to sell um, to this day. And I couldn't be more grateful. This I didn't expect to sell 2000 copies. I mean, I sold 350 copies the first day. I thought I'm going to sell 20. <laughs> that was my goal, you know, uh, and that definitely worked out. You should talk to Americans more, man. They say dream big. You know what? That is a problem that I actually seem to have. Like when we started Feedback Panda, we thought, hmm, what's the biggest we could ever get? And it was, oh, I want to build a business that has 50,000 MRR. That is my dream for the future. And then we sat there like two years later at 55,000 and I said, okay, now what? We didn't have any goals. So I guess like having a bit more lofty goals works, but you can't be disappointed if you have low, low goals. So I was pleasantly surprised to sell like 17 times as many books as I thought I would sell. And we were actually, we were on par uh, followers wise on Twitter for a long time. I, uh, you reached 3K, I reached 3K, you reached yeah. 4K. And then all of a sudden you launched your book and now you're at I don't know, 7K. <laughs> Yeah, 7.5, almost 7,600. But that's just, that was the, the thing I said I did on my second day of launching, the day after the launch. I launched on Twitter, right? And I actually have just today finished both writing and recording a podcast episode on my own podcast, telling this whole story of the book. Like the podcast episode turned out to be an hour long of me holding a monologue. So that's going to be fun for everybody to listen to. But the article is like 20 minutes reading time. And I, I go through details. I have screenshots of every single stage. It was a lot of fun to document. But what I did on the second day of launching, after the Twitter launch, I did a product hunt launch. And I've never launched on product hunt. I've uploaded a couple of times. I've been lurking on product hunt, but never launched. But that one was successful because I had this audience. And you were right. At this point, I was like at 4,000 something followers on Twitter. And... I launched on Product Hunt at, what was it, at midnight, essentially, and five minutes later on Pacific. So, but that's where Product Hunt switches his new day so that Zero to Sold would be on the list immediately. I woke up like 45 minutes later here in Berlin, which is nine hours later. So it was like 15 minutes to 10 in the morning, which is my regular time for waking up. It tells you a lot about me as well. And I it already had like 20 uploads. It was somewhere in the middle of the list, took a screenshot, posted that to Twitter. And a half an hour later, it was the first item on product hunt and it stayed there for 18 hours and right. if you look at my traffic on my blog for that day i had a lot of traffic the day before i had at least doubled the amount of traffic on that day because product hunt if you are up there they just keep coming and then the next day there's still more people looking at yesterday's product hunt and then product hunt has the newsletter where they put the top things both for the day and for the week so you get this avalanche of people interspersed over the next couple of days that was crazy and those people went back to my Twitter and then I overtook you in followers because that is really the explosion on product. And then just the consistent exposure of the book also got me lots of followers. 
Well deserved. So for people who don't write books, what are some strategies you'd give them, some tips to give them to grow their account, their Twitter account? The funny thing is I never thought I was writing a book while I was writing it. So in retrospect, like I said, right, I started writing blog posts about things that I wanted to talk about because they were clear in my mind. I was dealing with them at the time. So I just really wrote about what I cared about. Then at some point, I think I started the blog in November 2019, which is, I guess, two and a half months after I committed to building up like a list of blog post titles at the Notion document. And every time I had an idea, I added a new title and ended up with 40, 50, and then 100 new ideas just for blog posts. And I started with a couple of them. So I started with the, the blog, actually releasing the blog. I had 10 posts written already. So I had the significant amount of content that was already there. And then I had 400, 500 followers on Twitter. So I just interacted with people that had questions around a certain topic in the hacker bootstrapping space. And then whenever somebody asked about, I don't know, like how do I find a, an audience a market for my business? I would link the corresponding article right into as a meaningful value add to a conversation, right? I would push too much. I wouldn't say follow me, but people follow you if you provide good content. And people who follow you because you ask them to follow you, they will unfollow you because there's no point in following somebody without a meaningful relationship or an expectation of value. So that combined with the fact that I committed myself to writing one single blog post every single week for years means, I guess, that I had to deliver and I have to deliver every single week. And once you have this kind of cadence, this kind of rhythm, then people see that and they look at your stuff more because they see, okay, in the world of things that just go big and then implode, here's some consistency. Here's something that I can actually expect to be there next week. So they flock to you and then they retweet you because your insights actually are meaningful because otherwise they would unfollow you. So provide valuable stuff, easiest thing, because if you don't, then no amount of Twitter growth hacking will ever get you a stable community and build a community. Maybe that's even more important. Center your content around what people in the group that you want to serve actually need to hear. Want to hear, need to hear, don't want to hear. There's a lot of stuff that you can say to put yourself in a unique position. Like just look at the money Twitter space. There's a lot of good accounts out there that give really valuable, actionable feedback or actionable advice. And then there's a lot of accounts that give really inspirational advice. And then there's a lot of accounts that are just shitposting the whole time. But each of these three is a specific kind of position to be in. And all of them have an audience within this space. So for me, I don't know how to describe myself really, because I've never really thought about it. But I want to be somebody who lifts up and empowers other founders to share their journeys. I share when they share. I encourage them to share. I point at them. This is cool. Look at this. I retweet questions. I help people. I want to be somebody who's the supporter, like a catalyst for other people. That's what I want to be. And then there's people in the space who want to be course teachers, like people who teach through courses and make money that way. I don't really want to do that, at least not right now. I have written a book, sure, but I still want to be like in the community lifting up instead of teaching necessarily. The same exact way. What I do is teaching too, just different, right? And Find that spot and then serve the people that come to you. No, don't serve the people that are somewhere else. Don't try to get them to follow you. When there's this amount of people almost there, or they are there, they're just almost following you, and you just really need to engage them a bit better. I think building a genuine audience require you, requires you, again, to be part of a community and to empower that community from within. And 
what I would say is give without taking. It's like one of these kind of mantras, right? If you give and give and give, it will come back to you. And that's what I experienced with Zero to Soul. And I show gratitude to work. Like I show that I'm grateful by saying that I'm grateful. I thank people. I encourage people to do what they do for me with other people, right? It's like pass it on, share what you know, and I guess give without needing to take immediately. That's a long-term strategy. All of this is a long-term strategy. And I think that's the core, right? Nice, Arvid. Thank you very much. I, uh, I really enjoyed it. Yes, of course. Yeah, it was great. Really like talking to you. Any last words? Well, I can plug my stuff if you like, because I learned that's how you do it. Of course. You can find my blog at thebootstrapfounder.com. And if you want to support me or the blog, you can find my book, Zero to Sold, at zerotosoldbook.com. And obviously, you can find me on Twitter at Arvid Kahl, A-R-V-I-D-K-A-H-L. That's a wrap on this week's episode. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to subscribe and leave an iTunes review. We need them. Thanks for listening. Until next week.